0: Welcome to Decades From Home, a podcast about the weird and wonderful side of living in Germany. And all without saying, Hoffnung ist ein gutes Frühstück, aber ein Schlechtes Abendbrot. I'm Nick Alton of 40%German.com and I'm joined by my co-host Simon Maddox. How are you, Simon? I'm doing really well, thanks, mate. Very nice opening quote about the nature of hope. Yeah, you know, it makes a good (laughs) breakfast, but a really bad... I didn't think Brot would be the right translation. It's a Francis Bacon quote. I mean, you know that because you told me what the quote was. It's <laughs> inside baseball for the listener there. Oh, no. We've given away the secrets. <laughs> the quote's from Francis Bacon, but I was thinking, I guess it's like Schlechter's dinner, like about a bad dinner, or or is it a bad supper?
1: Yeah, I imagine it would have been supper, yeah. as the original word he would have used. Yeah.
0: Arbenbrot is a pretty um, one. I should have changed it to side because... Yeah is a terrible northern concept, whereas broadside is a a lovely, wonderful buy-in concept.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for me, broadside feels more lunchtime though. It's just, maybe that's my own my own issue. Broad at least points in the right direction of a disappointing dinner. I mean,
0: we've had this conversation about about whether broadside's a solid dinner option, but I think ultimately broadside's like any time. I think. Mm. It's bread time. <laughs> bread times whenever you want it to be. I watched something related to Germany yesterday in preparation for the podcast, but also because it's been on my Netflix to watch list for about, pff, I guess, four weeks or so. I watched Army of Thieves with Matthias Schwieghofer, our favorite mm. German actor, or is it to say the mm. only German actor? And I've got I got so much to say about this film. I was I was so impressed. <laughs> So like I've watched him perform like he does this lovely line, does Matishvikov of Confused Young Man. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of his character and a lot of what he does. It's like he did the Amazon TV show where he was like action confused mm-hmm. young man. He did that film with where he's trying to break into a bank with Til Schweiger and um Jan Josef Leifers, where he played comedic mm-hmm. confused. And and in this one he plays like cute german confused it's hard to explain he's, he's very endearing in the role mm-hmm. that he plays because it's a prequel to the day of the dead i think it was is that the name of the zombie film that was on netflix
1: yeah they've done well the remakes have done dawn of the dead and day of the dead have both been redone recently mm-hmm.
0: yeah yes yeah, so day of the dead's the most recent one where they're in las mm-hmm. vegas and it's weirdly a, a prequel to that and i'm not sure who matthias shriekoff has m- made friends with but it's essentially a vehicle for him because he doesn't just act in it, he directs it. And man, like, that kid's got way <laughs> too much talent. His direction is very, like, Wes Anderson. It's got a very Wes okay. Anderson-y sort of feel to it. The shots look really good. His physical comedy's really good as well, and I was just, like, watching it going, maybe, maybe that's how it works in Germany. It's like every generation, one actor <laughs> gets all the talent that's available in Germany, becomes a massive star, and then slowly... Sort of declines as as stars tend to do as they age, and then the next one—it's like there can be only one. It's the Highlander <laughs> of actors. Is he the Kurgan in this? No, scene? surely not. I, you can't give him the role of <laughs> Kurgan. Although I, I went through his filmography out of curiosity, it's been a lot of films. Apparently, he was in Thor. I didn't realize he was in Thor, but he was apparently in Thor—a um, small role, but but like every german actor he's been in an american film about the second world war playing a playing a nazi of course that's very important yeah the red baron i think you, wasn't it uh, wait the red baron wasn't a nazi he was just first world war
1: so no but he he was playing a, a war film he was the, yeah. the German. Yeah. He played
0: he played Baron von Richtofen. Mm-hmm.
1: It seems that two thousand and eight was his war movie yeah cause He did the Red Baron and he did Valkyrie. Oh right, yeah, he did
0: Valkyrie. Tom right, Cruise. yeah, yeah, yeah. No.
1: Which was one of the weirdest German film ideas because mm-hmm. it started off. The opening line is Tom Cruise speaking it in German, and then suddenly he switches to English, and then the rest of the movie is in English.
0: They're never going to do a full film in German, right? I mean, there's a lot of German in this in this army of thieves. A film like that, I think it's really hard when they're trying to do. Because ultimately, when they do foreign accents in American films, they end up just being British, right? That's kind of how it works. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was just really impressed with this film. I just thought it was really good. <laughs> I was really impressed with his acting skills because I don't think I think it must be really hard to act mm-hmm. in a foreign language with any level of proficiency. But his English must be really good because all the script writers, like legendary because all the German mistakes were, like, on point. And we know all those German mistakes, the sort of misuse of pronouns or badly organized sentences. Mm-hmm. And you know sometimes a good, like, mid-level German native speaker who speaks English, they'll make quite, like, antiquated sentences. They mm-hmm. sound quite old-fashioned sometimes. Not just when they say discotheque. But when it, <laughs> is, it totally works. I was, really sort of, I was really impressed with it anyway. That's my, my recommendation for the week. I think the first movie of his I saw was uh, the movie Friendship. Mm-hmm. Have you seen that one? I don't think I've. I've no.
1: I haven't seen it now. It's, it's a nice little buddy comedy, effectively. I guess it's probably funnier if you are German because the whole setup is that they're two guys from the DDR, the old East Germany, who, when the war comes down, travel to New York, uh, well, to the States in general, uh, and they want to go to what I think they call the westernmost point in the world, which they think is the Golden Gate Bridge. That's sort of their end destination for yeah, the construction yeah, yeah and naturally it's a buddy comedy so things don't go particularly to plan <laughs> it was the first film my wife was like you should watch it he's really good to give him his due, pretty good but uh, I've say my interest is more peaked than they've said it's like Wes Anderson because I love Wes Anderson so maybe I will give it a go
0: well I mean it's a heist film and, and one of the conceits of mm. the film is is these safes that he has to crack that are named after Wagner's Ring Cycle but the look like the level of design that has gone into the the set and how it looks it looks like a 60s film set mm-hmm. now but there's something particularly wonderful I think after you live in Germany for a certain point and we've talked about German being a beautiful language but because it got a dammerung phew, that's a lovely word mm-hmm. that is a lovely word <laughs> Like I'm totally into that, and it's the name of one of the safes, and I'm just like, God the damn it,
1: yeah. <laughs> Twilight of the Gods. Well, I mean, yeah, this is the interesting <laughs> thing with Wagner because I think when when people outside of Germany think of Wagner, they think of like Apocalypse Now, Ride of the Valkyries, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and just very impressive music. But yeah, it's interesting. Obviously, one of the the most famous pieces by Wagner is the Meistersinger von Nuremberg, which is of mm-hmm. course the city that I live in and Nick used to live in. And my old boss um, went to a live show of it um, a few years ago, way before Corona. And afterwards we went for a beer a couple of nights later and she seemed genuinely like struggling with what had happened. And um, eventually she broke and she's like... I'm. I went to see my singer of the other night, I have to say it was really shocking how right wing it was. When you ignore the the words, <laughs> it sounds really good, but the text is pretty daunting.
0: Well, I think I think it's, they do the Wagner Fest and Bayreuth every year, and it mm-hmm. is sort of yeah. tinged. There's a lot of the great and the good go there, but I'm not sure how many of the, the sort of English speakers who go to see Wagner appreciate like what wagner actually means like when someone goes i really i really love wagner in germany there is a little bit of an eyebrow raise of like really yeah. like what wh- why do you like it so much
1: <laughs> yeah i mean i guess if someone does that they're either they're quite right ring <laughs> and this is their way of approaching the topic i feel better if they were like yeah i really like beethoven Bach, and, and wagner's pretty good so <laughs> like, okay that's the that's the way to deal with that <laughs> um, but of course Bayreuth is is the home of wagner Mm. Um, but it wasn't that long ago that there was a uh, a Russian opera singer who was supposed to be performing at that and at the last minute he got, I guess, unbooked is probably the way they want to mm. describe it because it was revealed that he had uh, Hakenkreuz tattooed on his chest he had a swastika oh, tattoo holy shit. <laughs> and I took off his shirt in rehearsal and they were just like
0: Fuck.
1: Oh. <laughs> a Russian Nazi who wants yeah. to be doing Wagner
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean that's the final indicator, right? It's like it's like I really like Wagner. All right. And I've also got got a swastika tattooed <laughs> on my chest. All right. Now, well, no. No, we don't really want to engage with you on any level whatsoever. This is not in the notes we were going to talk about. <laughs> no, this. it's
1: not. No, it is not. <laughs> but it's a, it's a really interesting thing because if you watch I'm, I'm a big fan of, of prison documentaries. And mm-hmm. if you watch American prison documentaries, you will be blown away by how many swastika tattoos, how many Harkin tattoos there are because of the white power and area and brotherhood and all these white prison gangs. It's like it is truly a gang sign. Like illegal tattoos in Germany are standard fare for prisoners all over the US. It's pretty wild. Obviously, in Russia, they have their own prison tattoo culture, and a swastika is not part of that. Uh, so that dude. Just really
0: liked Hitler. <laughs> I know, yeah. I mean, yeah, he really likes singing Wagner and has a swastika. I, I can imagine why they unbooked him. Makes a lot of sense. Anyway, moving on from Wagner and National Socialism, right? We weren't
1: going to talk about Brexit or the Nazis, and we've done it two weeks <laughs> no, in a row. No. shit! Oh,
0: we're really letting the team down. Anyway, let's move yeah. on to like hard hard left shall we say towards yes. some some good news it's finally stolen time i'm going to mm-hmm. be allowed to buy stolen my wife isn't going to prevent my burgeoning stolen love and i'm going to do some really heinous things to it i've got <laughs> ideas i'm going to upset all the people who think Stalin should only be eaten quietly in a <laughs> cafe and cooking setting i'm gonna i'm gonna make something with it i was thinking bread and butter pudding would be fantastic as a start
1: oh it really could work yeah uh-huh. I hadn't even done it, with it. That, that could it's really unhealthy to do that but
0: i think it would work it's gonna be my sunday special i'm just gonna buy a couple of like bog standard stolins and just see what i can get away with watch this space for <laughs> nick's indigestion interge- problems <laughs> you see them on mic has got <laughs> you've
1: got to go for one without marzipan and i guess to do that though i think a marzipan stolin
0: wouldn't oh, work well. that well with a brand. Let's butter. see, you know, let's see what. we' get get one of each and report back. That's my plan, you know. I'm scientific, if anything, when it comes to stolen. On the back <laughs> of stolen mania, shall we call it? We have uh, the Christmas markets are going to be coming back. The yeah, first I knew about it was when I read it in Simon's notes for the podcast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think at least in Nuremberg it was green lit. I think ten days mm-hmm. ago at time of recording. Mm-hmm. So by the time this comes out, it'll be basically two weeks mm-hmm. since it was announced. Um, and there are quite a few changes to make it work more effectively. I'm very lucky here in Nuremberg and any city or town in, in Bavaria, you're pretty much going to have a really nice Christmas market. But of course, Nuremberg has a very, very famous and iconic market square in the center of town. This market is where the, the sort of centerpiece of the Christmas market was. And before Corona, there would be, I think it was about two and a half meters. Uh, would be the aisles that you could walk down, and traffic went both ways. It was very, very cramped. And with it being part of a pretty standard tourist journey over the Christmas period, people go to Munich, Nuremberg, Rottenburg, up the Tauber, which we've talked mm-hmm. about before, mm-hmm. maybe Augsburg, somewhere along the Romantische Strasse. So you would have a lot of tourists who were just trying to enjoy their Christmas, uh, drink their glue vines, but a lot of them would be people that don't necessarily realize that you need to keep moving and there would just be obstructions and it would just be stressful I avoided it for years because it was just a nightmare <laughs> uh, so now they've broadened the alleyways between the shops there are going to be fewer shops and there'll be more locations throughout the city mm-hmm. uh, where there will be these markets as well so Jakobsplatz in Nuremberg, uh which is a stone's throw from the pub where Nick and I first met oh. uh, is going to be one of the centres as well. So they'll basically anything in the Altstadt mm-hmm. will be Christmassy as opposed to the traditional spots. There will be no Christkind, there will be no stage performances. There's going to be no Christkind. Not live unveiling on the day. It's going to be done online and there's going to be like visits from the Christkind in different places, but it's not going to be the traditional Christkind
0: unveiling. Because it's sort of elected, aren't they? They're sort of elected every year or nominated every year. Mm-hmm and you have the Christkind and if you don't know what the Christkind is listener um, you're not german that's the obvious <laughs> thing the Christkind is the, the sort of manifestation of christmas for the for the catholic church and also the entity i guess that brings the yep. christmas presents for good catholic girls and boys and whoever else wants presents so instead of santa claus which i mean frankly that's mental but um <laughs> yeah, I'm, well, we're coming to that question of do we have a Santa Claus or do we have a Chriskind Kind with our daughter? I'm advocating very much for Santa Claus.
1: I, the Chriskind Kind is just a bit of a weird thing. Like the outfit is a little bit strange, but normally there would be a parade. Like this person would be mm-hmm. sort of go through throngs of people, like shaking hands and greeting people. And of course, that's not really compatible with the current climate of covid restrictions in germany but they're not going to stand on the balcony no i think it's that element oh, is going to be done online uh, so you'll be able to okay. watch it and still have that experience for your kids at home but it's going to be different for sure
0: well, i guess that's it isn't it that's the slow change right Is mm. Things like that will take a while to get back. I know what they're doing in Augsburg is—I don't. I'm not going to complain because actually I've always thought the Christmas markets were far too packed in together. Mm -hmm. Especially even without a pandemic, you have like cold and flu season, everyone's like standing within centimeters of each other, coughing on each other. So what you have is a really packed center in the but What they're going to do now is what they've done with a few other events is spread them out throughout the city, Mm -hmm. which is actually quite nice because it kind of feels like you're going from station to station. Mm -hmm. You can do a little bit of a pub crawl, but Also, certainly at Nurn- in Nuremberg, less so in the smaller markets, but in Nuremberg they always have doubles of all the shops. Mm-hmm. You go through all the markets and there's places that essentially on each little strasser or gang or whatever you want to call it, they have the same kinds of stuff selling the same kinds of things from like the same factory in I forget where it is. It's somewhere in the north of Germany. The the Christmas factory that they have, or Christmas village that they have, where they make all the decorations.
1: Yeah, I think it was at one point ninety seven percent of the world's baubles ball mm. were made in one German town. That, that that's definitely mm-hmm, not mm-hmm. the case today, but it still it is the base of it. And of course, you have the the very iconic company Keter Wolfhardt. Keter Wolfhardt have stores in the UK. There's one in York that's there year round. In Nuremberg, we have one that's always there, and then. When the ice cream season ends, then Katea Wolfhart takes over one of the big ice cream shops near the halbmarkt, mm-hmm. and then they'll also have stalls in the market itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, it makes it very easy to overpay on a very nice piece of wooden Christmas. Decor. I mean, they are good quality mm-hmm.
0: though. You can you can see the difference. Like when you look at like one of the cheaper things, like a Nussnacker a or a, like a nutcracker or something like that, you can see the quality of the material in the paint and the mm-hmm. painting work on it quite clearly. But at the same time, it's so fine the margins. I still don't feel particularly enamored with the idea of buying a nutcracker for 150 <laughs> euros. Don't care how good or well painted it is. Yeah, I
1: mean there are certain things which are pretty, pretty expensive. I mean the Pyramid, um, the sort of towers that oh, you yeah. you power with candles that then turn a fan on the top and then gives you a, a spinning Christmas scene. I mean some of them are as tall as we are, like two meters tall and mm. more. And those go for hundreds and thousands of euros oh yeah and yeah i mean so it's a great very 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 profitable industry and i say i used to work regularly in rottenburg of the Tauber where this company is from and they have their central shop and you'd see tourists getting on the train with bags and bags mm. of cater Wolfhart stuff to be sent home in the post to make every Christmas a little bit more German in the future, which is lovely.
0: Best, best Christmas is a German Christmas.
1: <laughs> I think this is the position they've managed to carve out for themselves because mm. although maybe an American Christmas is a bit more sort of gun-blazing, balls-to-the-wall, tinsel everywhere, lights and extravagance, but a German one is that authentic version of this. And, of course, Christmas trees and all these elements stem from German culture. Uh, so, yeah, I guess we we should probably... Aim for a more German one if we can.
0: Well, I mean, we can't help it living here. Anything we do in Germany if we're having Christmas is going to be a German Christmas. Even if we're doing something really weird, like having <laughs> Yorkshire puddings for Christmas dinner.
1: Yeah, I guess I have to call them Bayern puddings at that point. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Bayern puddings. Like, you know they've got meat in them. You just know just by <laughs> the just saying they're Bayern puddings. They're going to be some kind of meat centred dish. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, dear. So, Simon, I've got a question for you. Mm-hmm. What are the contents of a traditional British Christmas dinner? Okay. There's quite a few things, so I'll
1: see if I can get them all in one. I mean, you've got turkey, mm-hmm. for sure. Stuffing. Mm-hmm. Roast potatoes. Brussels sprouts. Cranberry sauce. Gravy. And then, I mean, the vegetables, it's a bit of a hit and miss. I mean, could have a, uh, broccoli, cauliflower cheese. Do you have
0: some parsnips in there?
1: I'd, I'd, have, I'd have some parsnips, yeah. I'm a big fan of the old parsnip um stuffing some carrots stuffing oh yeah paxo if you got it if we're we're doing it from from a box pigs and blankets oh oh yes pigs and blanket please uh for for the people who don't know what that is that's a sausage wrapped in bacon so it's pig in pig uh, which is always oh so good it's freaking genius one of the best now
0: simon Mm -hmm. how would you feel if i said you could get all of this wondrous christmas food and an easy to carry container a single container <laughs> not just a single container a container that we might may, may last <laughs> several years if you don't open it
1: i mean are we talking one of these like prepper (laughs) big tubs a five gallon vat of christmas in a christmas in a vat
0: maybe not five gallons but definitely if you were one of these end of the world is coming (laughs) type preppers then this would sort you out for at least a couple of christmases after the apocalypse (laughs) because heinz have announced that they are going to make christmas dinner in a can (laughs) festive heinz soup tin contains in quotes Big chunks of turkey, pigs, and blankets, sprouts, and stuffing balls. Uh, This is a product. Big chunks. I can't believe I fucking read that. I can't believe I fucking read that. So in in 2021, these these important products will be available for Christmas. Although, in saying that, there will only be 500 cans of this particular, I want to say meal, but I feel that that's overstating it slightly, but I guess it's what it is. It's a, um, a Heinz product that's already been going. They, they make these things called Big Soup, which is essentially a soup with lots of big chunks in it. And they're making 500 cans of Christmas dinner Big Soup. So it's not even like it's a, a sturdy Christmas dinner. It's a soup. How do you feel about that, Simon? I'm I'm a little bit torn here, I, I
1: have to say. like I think Germany could learn from the Big Soup culture because I like a chunky soup. I like a thick soup. And it's very hard to find. Uh, in in a can here in Germany. Most soups are quite watery, and most classic German soups, like the hochzeit Super, is really, it's just broth. And I don't like that. So I'm down for the big soup. I am concerned about the 500 cans, because I think what they've actually created is a collector's item. People are going to be storing these away and selling them next year for upmarked uh, price, I imagine. I want to try this, I have to say. I don't think I want it enough that I'm going to like try and get one if there's only 500. But if they made them in the thousands yeah i'd probably give
0: it a go i just want to reassure you i really want you to try it too i, I don't <laughs> want to be anywhere near it i don't want to smell it when it's cooking i feel, i looked at what it looks like and it looks like i mean it just looks like every stereotype of british food like i've spent a decade you've spent cumulatively, we've spent two <laughs> decades trying to convince germans that british food is not terrible <laughs> and then in one fell swoop Heinz has destroyed our good efforts by producing a product that looks essentially like the stuff that the British government's pumping into the sea, as we discussed.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, this is my, my concern. It's going it's to have to be brown. It's very brown. <laughs> that's not really the ideal color for anyone for Christmas. Think of all those beautiful festive colors, green, red, gold, and brown.
0: <laughs> I, I looked at the website because I'm a good little researcher, and I'll describe <laughs> what I'm seeing here. Essentially, it's a very <laughs> thick brown soup with what is clearly pigs in blankets. You can cle- see them clearly. Uh, Brussels sprouts, and then a Morphous-looking meat product. It's a ball shape, mm-hmm. I think. And then just bits, just bits. I don't know what those bits are, But I'm reassured by the description here on the Heinz uh, website that says, full-on ingredients, big-time flavor. This festive limited edition is packed full of big chunks of all your festive feasting favorites. Turkey, stuffing, chunky potatoes, Brussels sprouts, and even pigs in blankets for no-nonsense seasonal satisfaction. (laughs) They're really selling that one, aren't they? Oh, and it's sold out, just so you know. Oh, is it already sold out? Oh Sorry, good listeners.
1: We're getting you hyped up for nothing now. I mean, I have some previous with things like this, because when I was at boarding school, it was pretty common that I'd have things like an all-day breakfast in a can as
0: part of my, like, going back to school. What do they taste like? Please tell me what they taste like, because I've never had one. I've seen many people eat them with an excruciating look on their face.
1: I mean, yeah, it's, it's not really particularly satisfying. I mean, the, the prominent flavour is baked beans, because that is... <laughs> That's, that's the the cheapest ingredient of all of them. And then you would have, like... I mean, you talked about a, a meaty ball, uh, and that was definitely the, the pervading memory there, that the meat would just be chunky and baldy, grey. Mm. And then they'd also have those incredibly cheap sausages that are basically hot dog sausages uh, for back home, but they'd be sold as part of the breakfast. And it was... I mean, there was a variety of texture. There was a variety of flavours. I dread to think what E numbers and how much salt there must have been in them. But for a, a couple of years, they were a treat
0: (laughs) but i think there's things you eat when you're younger that you would like i remember distinctly for about three years at high school every lunchtime getting something that was described as a um cheeseburger puff and essentially it was a burger like a really cheap burger with a bit of cheese on wrapped in puff pastry (laughs) (laughs) and it was at the time i remember it being delicious but i'm sure if i had one now i would die it was kids should not be eating that stuff it's wrong you know on all levels but scotland it's like east
1: german gregs or something
0: (laughs) i have a feeling they would do a better job of it but this this christmas (laughs) dinner uh, soup product or whatever it is (laughs) soup product sounds good it sparked something in my head and i was like well i wonder i wonder if there is an equivalent horrendous food so that I don't feel so bad when we talk about this. Is there an equivalent terrible food that I can find in Germany that would be equivalent? And and my God, I did some searching and I found (laughs) literally nothing. The search that I did was for like... Schlechter Schlechter Schlechter's Deutsches Essen or something like that. And what I got was ravioli in a tin. And I was like, why would you start with the best option? I'm like that's insane. <laughs> ravioli in a tin is a good choice. There are two things that I thought
1: of immediately when you say this, and one is sauerlung, sauerlunger, yeah, which is lung in like vinegar. Mm. That's pretty horrible. And that comes in a can. Yeah. And I think though well, we checked before that you can also get sauerzipfel mm-hmm. Uh, in a can as well and uh, for people that aren't from Franconia Sarah Zipful is basically a sausage cooked in vinegar mm-hmm. and it's, it's an acquired it's taste it's not bad but it is an acquired taste think you have to live here for three years <laughs> before you get your zip full badge.
0: I'm surprised they don't (laughs) sell, like, cloaks or something in a tin... Maybe it's just because German people are less inclined to eat tinned food. But there is a weird
1: uh, prevalence of jarred Mm -hmm. food, Mm -hmm. though. Like, mushrooms in a jar, like, pre-sliced mushrooms in, like, a watery... Is it just water? I don't know. It's some sort of preservative. And that's grim. It's really, really 60s. But it's still mm. everywhere. Every supermarket mm-hmm. has mushrooms in a jar of water. Oh, awful things!
0: I have like other curious products that you would assume would be tinned, but yeah, like you said, they just put them in jars. But like I know for a fact, my wife's family, but their friends as well, they like to do preservatives. They do they pickle things and they they make other kinds of preservatives as is like a mm-hmm. regular activity. If I go into my parents-in-law's basement, it's like cornucopia of different jarred foods so i guess that maybe it's because people have more confidence in the in the jarring process than in the canning process or maybe i have no idea
1: (laughs) well i mean jarring anyone can do i think canning your own goods at home requires machinery or at least tools
0: i think you yeah you mean you would need something to seal the cans of course but okay so let's shift the question slightly what food in germany would you want to have in a can if you could get something if you were like (laughs) i'd get this because i was going camping or maybe you're going somewhere and and you're like well this would be fun to have with us because i feel like the breakfast in a can isn't designed for regular eating as it is to sort of designed for convenience and carrying around right when you're camping or something i, I think
1: if, if you look in your heart you know exactly what i'm gonna say curry first
0: curry first in a can i would i know schnitzel wouldn't work in a can but i've thought maybe chauffeur <sighs> in a can,
1: <laughs> in a can. just pull out a bone and then you're left with just
0: you wouldn't yeah. have the bone in it that's taking a valuable <laughs> meat space right But <laughs> so you could put the, the, the bottom and then on top of it you could put two close bang can closed Selling it to oh. Franconians who are all going camping in Italy, you can just imagine them pulling up <laughs> like, none of you none of your Italian muck. I've got this Franconian special in a can. Thank you very much
1: <laughs> oh I don't feel very well <laughs> <imagining> <laughs>
0: Good,
1: good canned closer is really not doing it for me.
0: It's an excellent start. Well, I guess then, if you don't like that, how about we get like a nice dessert in there, maybe like a okay kaisershmarm or maybe you could have high is quite a popular one so like fruit and ice cream obviously the ice cream would be trickier to include but you could have like a can of of ready to go fruit. No,
1: so I'm I'm just stuck on the idea of like trying to translate "Heißer for, Lieber" for, for non-Germans. Like this hot love, dessert baby. Is called hot love. Is <laughs> it? up, hot love. Hot
0: <laughs> love. love. And it's the weird thing is, is yes, the fruit is hot, but the ice cream is cold. So maybe it's the perfect description of a relationship with a German. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let one hang in the air a little bit yeah. why not I'm going to get a divorce
1: <laughs> now one of the things that's on a lot of people's wish list this year is a new job it's not necessarily something you are Santa for but a new job is something that a lot of people are looking for and Nick the lucky duck already has his so Christmas has come early. Yeah, nailed yeah. that one down. Well done. So now you can start thinking about what you, what sugary snacks you want instead. I want all my sugary snacks in a can. <laughs> can stolen. Oh. <laughs> this brings us to what is being dubbed in the English language as the Great Resignation, uh, where almost one in four UK workers are planning a job change. And this is covered by the Guardian. And they say the manufacturing, construction, tech, and logistic workers are most confident about finding a new role. It continues by that almost a quarter of workers are actively planning to change employers in the next few months and this has been dubbed the great resignation because there are lots of vacancies available especially in the uk with the the fleeing of of tens of thousands of eu citizens Mm. there are lots of jobs that are available there and of course the burnout that has been caused by the pandemic these are pretty good reasons to be fed up In your current position. And so, Nick, was this a factor in your move? Was corona something to do with it? Or did you just see a vacancy and you were
0: like, ooh, I'm going to snap that up? I felt like I was getting close, especially before Christmas 2020. And I think we talked about this. I was having a hard time through summer and towards the end of the year. But that was not necessarily to do with work, but I think being in the house for so long, Mm -hmm. being isolated for so long, another one of the many (laughs) reasons we started the the podcast was to alleviate the shit that we were all living through, but entertain ourselves in the, in the dark winter months. Yeah. I was working too much. Certainly I was working irregularly and that was, that's the worst is when you when your home becomes your office, mm. when do you stop working? You're sort of working almost all the time. So that was not a factor, but no, I was, I was sick of the job. I didn't want to do it anymore. I was concerned that we might never go back to the office mm-hmm. and I might just end up becoming a, English trainer and a on a laptop. That was one fear. And the other fear was that would actually the pandemic would end and I'd have to start travelling to work mm-hmm. again so it wasn't necessarily burnout but lack of satisfaction with what i was doing and lack of enjoyment and then opportunity came up of course i mean one of the things that that really affected our our industry as
1: as teachers was you went from knowing people on quite a personal level and getting to know people well to suddenly just being a face in a zoom call or a a skype meeting whatever platform you were forced to use and yeah i found it really demoralizing Mm -hmm. i also Lost like 85% of my customer base because one of the first thing companies did was cancel English classes because it is, mm. it's a luxury uh, in financially difficult times for companies like this. I think the rewards that you get as a teacher were limited heavily when you have to do it remotely. Mm. And yeah, I find it very challenging to, to get to know people uh, over a virtual platform. I think if you know people, you can shift to lessons quite easily online because you have knowledge of each other and banter to fall back on. It's a lot more demanding, I think. And you have to know that your lesson plan is in place because you don't really want to waste people's time. Uh, In a video called, people look more bored, I find as well. (laughs) Maybe it was just my lessons in that period.
0: No, I think that's true. I think that's true. I think. I think, as well, we, in one respect, we were lucky because at least at least you had like some kind of human contact mm-hmm. through the meetings. but there's those people who were working in jobs, maybe as freelancers, copywriters, mm-hmm. website designers, stuff like that, where they didn't have necessarily that daily human contact. Mm. they just stare at a screen for eight, nine, ten, whatever hours mm-hmm. it would take, and they'd just lose their minds, you know, and I can understand why you would, but I felt at the beginning. It was sort of new, and people were like, Yeah, okay, like let's mm-hmm. get, let's do this, let's get, let's try it and see if it works. And by towards sort of Christmas, New Year, people were just pig sick of it. People didn't want to do it. Fewer people were using their cameras. Mm-hmm. Fewer people seemed like they wanted to engage. You don't have as much. Authority, Mm -hmm. you can't do half the sort of fun stuff that you want to do. I'd constantly find activities that were like, get everyone to stand up. You're like, it's a great activity, but no one's going to stand up on their webcams. It's not going to happen.
1: I got offered a couple of groups last week where it was 15 people in each group, all online. It's like I I don't want to teach large groups online. As you say, it just becomes after a few sessions, people just don't put the cameras on, don't interact in the same way. It's Mm -hmm. just. Yeah. Feels so demoralising, and I need
0: plaudits. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, need, I, need, I need backslaps. I need oh. nods. <laughs> I need a little sign. <laughs> just, just a yes or no at any point. I like you'd ask a question, and no one would even bother to say yes or no. Thank mm. God, but it seems Brutal. like it seems like in the UK, a lot of people think, thinking at least the survey that's mentioned in the article, a lot of people want to want to move jobs.
1: It's, I mean, it really, is a lot. So they surveyed six thousand workers, and this is by Randstadt, UK. And 69% of those surveyed uh were confident about moving to a new role in the next few months, and 24% were actively planning in the next three to six months. And that's a big difference from the normal. Apparently eleven percent is normal for them. This has implications not just for the workers, but also for the companies, because the cost of onboarding, the cost of training, and the time it takes for someone to reach like peak productivity is, is challenging. It's about twenty-five grand, they estimate in the UK per worker. Uh, across all that and they say 28 weeks takes for a worker from when they start to when they're reaching optimum performance Mm. and yeah that's of course challenging for the business owner and the business management but as a freelancer i don't really care (laughs) i'm much more selfish because i yeah i didn't have a company paying my health care or my insurance i had to manage all that stuff on my own and it, it was almost a relief where i lost so much business to the point where i was able to go onto my wife's insurance as part of her family plan and yeah. then my insurance was covered by the state. Thank God! Um, that does mean that I can't work a huge amount now. And it's made it difficult to take on new work because I can't accept more than what would qualify me uh, for that. But I mean, yeah, there are lots of factors as to why people are unhappy. And we have a quote here from uh, Victoria Short, who's the CEO of Ranch.UK, where she talks about burnout. It's something we've already mentioned. And she says, some teams have be running too hot for too long. The pandemic has changed how some people think about life, work, and what they want out of both. It's made people step back and rethink their lives. COVID has reminded them that life is too short. End quote. And I think that's a really valid point for the entirety of our working lives and people much older than us as well. You just went to work and you got what you wanted out of it and you were paid accordingly. But we have uh, had a a large reset about how mortal we all are. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, work-life balance is, is a really key thing that I think Germany has kind of not embraced as much as it could have over the last few years. When we were living in the US and my wife was working for the same company there, the work-life balance was completely different. There were more activities. There was more free time. There was much more focus on having fun. Now, of course, that isn't what work is for. It is not the, it's not in your contract for any company here that you will be guaranteed an X amount of fun, mm-hmm. but it was. It was revitalizing and rejuvenating. It does mean the company wasn't as productive on the, on, on the, uh, on performance indices, but the employees were happier. I know that for sure.
0: As for work, I was looking at the British social attitude survey from this year. Well, it's from 2020 and they did two during the pandemic. And there's two stats that stood out for me. 41% of people surveyed think paid work is very good for most people's mental health, an increase of 15 percentage points since 2019. And 27% think that it's very good for most people's physical health, an increase of 10 points. So there is like the sense that work is good, but then the feeling I get in Germany is the total opposite. A lot of companies are, are talking about how can we bake in, to the the sort of the recipe of work like regular home office days whereas in Mm -hmm. britain they're pushing to get everyone back to the office all the time um for no real reason other than and it just seems like the worst it it's like when 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 london was destroyed during the war and instead of modernizing the city they rebuilt it exactly the same way so it's like impossible to drive around it seems like that's the british attitude it's like (laughs) oh we've had this opportunity to change but we're not going to let's go back and do what we did before and just have all the same problems instead of like like let's evolve work whereas it feels here there's there's at least with some companies an attempt to do that or at least offer the option to do that Because I think a couple of days at home is all right. I think people have realized that, yeah.
1: I mean, mean, we've used the word burnout multiple times in our conversation. And the fact is, that's a word we both learned living in Germany. It's not something that's really talked about in the UK. Maybe things have changed in the the 10 plus years since we left. But companies know that you have to protect the mental health of 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 your workers, of your employees. And if you don't, you'll end up with people... Being off work with very strong legal protections, meaning they get paid a good amount the whole time they're off. And there are lots of ways to take advantage of that if you're so inclined. Whereas in the UK, statutory sick pay and those kinds of things don't really provide enough of a safety net. And in Germany, yeah, the situation is totally different. So companies know they have to lay a fair pitch to play Mm. on because otherwise people are just going to move to another company that has a better deal. Um, be it yeah, the statutory regulations are much much better here for the employee you are far better protected in a full-time job here than you are in the uk but i've been a freelancer pretty much the whole time here and that side is is pretty stressful especially in times of pandemic
0: yeah bit. but the, the story's the same in in germany as we were discussing it before the start of the podcast and i learned the the new word of the day which is villa. so quitting mm-hmm. Wave, I guess, was the was the direct translation that you gave us. But it's a topic here in Germany, and, and a lot, again, very similar reasons for why people might want to leave their jobs. They do mention America mm-hmm. a lot, but it says here, and this is a quote from Hans Zacker from the University of Leipzig, and this is from a Der Tagesspiegel article. In Germany, too many employees no longer want to continue working as they've been in the long term. Since March 2020, Zaka has been questioning employees in a representative study about their experiences, their working conditions, and their job satisfaction. The data has you know, not yet been fully evaluated, but the trend is emerging. Many of the respondents also intend to quit. But why now in an uncertain time when employees tend to wait rather than take risks, which is always the German sort of model. As as, mm-hmm. as Marty told us, you know, the, the fear of the future and the fear of the unknown. But what he says is mm-hmm. that... It's a good phrase as well. In the pandemic, we stepped out of the mill of everyday life. And many now look at their work Mm. from a distance, ask themselves whether they are systemically relevant, do what they always wanted to do, how important their colleagues and social cohesion in the company actually are to them. And I think it's that reflection, right? Like, what do I want? It's That mm. was my experience. Like, the reason I made all the changes to my life was I looked at my life and I decided I didn't want it to look the way it looked. And it needs to change. So we made some pretty dramatic changes. And it was difficult and stressful. But now things are beginning to settle. It seems like the mm-hmm. the, the most sensible option. But I think for a lot of people, and, and even with with your work-life balance has shifted, and I think you would you appreciate, like, do you want to go back to the eight sessions a day seven sessions a day kind of teaching is that something that like you want to do or is is it like are we thinking about well i'd actually like to do five sessions a day and not be worked like a dog and have some time for myself and time for hobbies and activities
1: yeah i mean it would depend on on the teaching to be honest Mm. when i when i was teaching at the university that was the happiest i'd ever been as a teacher because it was just A really nice dynamic environment. I taught in basically one of six rooms. I just went to a building and Mm. was there. But of course, the nature of business English teaching, which was what I did for the majority, every day is a different Mm. company. And it's just, there's no real stability in any of it. But the fact of the matter is, now, the most important thing for me is having a job that provides security. Uh, In terms of, yeah, paid holiday is something I've gone without for years. Having my insurance covered sounds really, really good. I just want a traditional, standard, boring job, uh, to be honest, just to give me something that's a bit more reliable Mm -hmm. because that's what I had never had. I was always able to make things work. But COVID was the first time I was like, okay, anything is possible and something can be taken away from you through no fault Mm -hmm. of your own and there's no way to build it back i could have slogged my ass off for months trying to get back customers but companies weren't weren't going to do it it would've just been a waste of my time um but yeah a nice universe like your new job sounds really good if you if you if you get fired give give, give them my name <laughs>
0: I'll, just, I'll work on it mate i'll see what i can do for you <laughs>
1: I, I do hope oh, you don't Me get too. Fired. Fucking hell. I, I hope it goes really, really well. <laughs> So, of course, with this great resignation, lots of companies are looking to fill vacancies. And, of course, lots of companies going back towards their traditional capacities and so need staff. And, of course, this is big in uh, gastronomy, of course. Most pubs and restaurants are advertising for wait staff at the moment. Companies like Amazon and warehouse fulfillment centers and delivery are all looking for new members of staff. And this has led to a rather exciting thing for the worker is there are lots of signing on bonuses being offered in the uk up to 10 grand uh, for some of these it's mainly medical where this is happening in the uk when it's up to 10 grand but even in germany amazon are offering people three thousand euros in certain cities uh, to work for them and of course three grand especially if you're hard up or have been struggling that's that's a massive massive bonus before you've even started your job but of course this also produces the effect we've spoken about in another episode where people are leaving one job for another one purely for financial reasons. And then when those reasons either are offered better elsewhere or disappear in your new job, then it's going to end up rotating. And this is a very normal thing in the UK. British people don't have this idea that I'm going to do this job for 25 years. That's pretty rare. And I think it's about between five and seven careers Uh, is now becoming normal. People change jobs, people change companies all the time, and it's Mm. a great way to negotiate higher salaries and get promoted more quickly. But in Germany, you still have this job for life mentality, especially in some of these big traditional companies. Um, yeah, companies like Siemens down here, they offer incredible security, Mm -hmm. really good prospects. Why would Mm. you leave? Even the canteens are good. (laughs) Um, but yeah, if somebody offers you like three grand, to, to go from one warehouse job to another, mm. like yeah, that's really tempting.
0: I don't see why a lot of these companies don't do that already, you know?
1: Well I mean, unfortunately, if you're a small company, offering everyone three grand to join is is too expensive. If you're Amazon, doesn't matter. Like you can offset that by not paying your taxes. Yeah, clearly. But if you're a, a small independent Germany comp- uh, german company doing let's say distributing baubles at christmas, there, there's no way you can afford to give someone two two months pay up front.
0: Doesn't have to be two two months pay though, does it? it could be it could be like a couple of hundred euros. Like as we've as we've seen like a couple of hundred euros can have a real impact mm-hmm. on people's lives. I think I think it's not necessarily a bad idea, but certainly with the big companies, like even supermarkets, you know, mm-hmm. like the massive national supermarkets. And that's, I'm thinking specifically about Britain, where they've been making ha- money um, hand over fist for for decades. Mm-hmm. They could easily offer their employees like a small signing bonus, but they don't because they don't need to. There's no motivation for them to do so. Well,
1: I mean, when the uh, when the German supermarkets Lidl and they entered the UK market, they raised a lot of eyebrows because they were offering incredibly good packages for people to join the company. Yeah. If you were if you got onto their management system, which wasn't a, a hugely complex thing to qualify for, you were guaranteed a company car uh, after two years, I think. And the salary was really competitive. Well, no, it wasn't competitive. It was really, really good for the industry. I mean, you worked for one of the biggest supermarkets. I worked for the biggest UK yeah. supermarket. And the pay isn't good in that the sector. Minimum wage. Exactly. But Aldi and Lidl gave much more and they gave benefits. And yeah, it resulted in very happy members of staff who stayed uh-huh. for a long time and didn't just think, okay, I'll try the, yeah. the other one and see if I like their uniform more. <laughs>
0: it's, it's, it's amazing what, what paying someone a living wage will do for your company, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so if you are in the market for a new job in Germany, good luck. We hope it goes well for you and we hope you find something that makes you happy. However, we are sad to report you have missed your chance to get into the new Bundestag. Ah, yeah. Traum job for past. Uh, Also, you might be facing another barrier to entry. This is an article coming from Deutsche Welle and the headline is Germany's new Bundestag only for the educated and in their next line it says in the newly elected parliament 87% of lawmakers have university educations a prevailing class marker in Germany and around the world of course Mm -hmm. and very few deputies have led a life as a worker or a low income earner this is not uncommon if we look at most parliaments or most governments around the world there is of course a a little stench of elitism Mm -hmm. But eighty seven percent is really high for having a degree. Does seem
0: extreme. Yeah.
1: And so what it ends up is that the majority of these are, yeah, what we call academics. And of course that title does hold some serious weight here. That is a, a real marker of class. And of course people are quite happy to to throw their title around uh, to get the recognition they deserve. There are many academics, there
0: are lawyers, there are tax consultants as well. That was the line that got me, was like, mm. there are many lawyers and tax consultants among the lawmakers, and I was like, imagine being a lawyer or a tax consultant, and then going, like, how can I make people like me? <laughs> I'll become a politician. It's like a combination of the worst things. If you said I'm a tax consultant, someone might brick you, you know? <laughs> Certainly no one likes lawyers. Well, I mean, and barely anyone I know likes politicians. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> well, I mean, tax
1: consultant is often described as one of the hardest jobs in germany because Mm -hmm. the tax laws are so complex and every year there are many 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 new regulations and to keep on top of them as a tax consultant you will be reading daily
0: uh, to keep on the cutting edge on the bleeding edge of tax law here really is the bleeding edge (laughs) yeah i mean yeah a lot of the stats here seem out of skew with what's happening with ordinary Germans and I think the bit that I would highlight here is that they celebrated the diversity of the new Bundestag which it is in a lot of ways more diverse Mm -hmm. but the stat here it had was only around 15% of German citizens are academics while the majority have completed vocational training after school the vocational training is very good you know Mm -hmm. you you get very good skill sets out of that training but does seem that we've maybe pushed the boundaries of how many people with theoretical knowledge versus applied knowledge is required at this level i like a deep thinker for sure <laughs> but i like i like someone who's actually got some practical awareness of how to fulfill some of these ideas
1: well i mean when i was reading this my, my first year of philosophy kicked in mm-hmm. and i was reminded of plato Uh, and his position on what he called the Philosopher Kings. Plato's idea of the Philosopher Kings, that they should be the rulers of what he called the Callipolis, which was his sort of utopian world the beautiful city is what callipolis means and the rulers of this imaginary city be based on knowledge so the more knowledgeable you were the better chance you had of being a leader it wasn't focused on power or military strategy which of course was a big motivator of that era and a philosopher king is a ruler who possesses a love of wisdom which is of course a very nice thing as well as intelligence reliability and a willingness to live a simple life uh, and that Last trait in particular is, is a bit of a kicker because that isn't the case really. Nope. These days, a simple life is not something that's lived by academics and the like. And so that made me think of Karl Popper. Um, oh, of course, yeah. yeah. Why not? <laughs> Love a bit of Popper. He's Austrian oh, he English, doesn't. but um, he said that it's just wrong to place political power in the hands of an elite. I'm with Popper. And looking at looking at the UK, I think we can see that maybe Popper was onto something. Maybe Maybe just going to Eton
0: isn't enough. Plato was a man of his time, which was several thousand years ago. (laughs) And I think the dynamics have slightly shifted. And I would (laughs) say, you have this problem in the UK and we'll move on to that, but there's not many working class politicians, even in the Labour Party, people who would consider sort of traditional working class. Or just people who've had a normal job that wasn't as (laughs) an advisor or as an intern or (laughs) to some politician or worked in a bank or something like that, Uh, I think, or as a journalist, as the Prime Minister would be a good example of. The article points out that the idea that there's a high proportion of academics in the Bundestag is not a new concept, or at least the criticism of too many Mm. academics in the Bundestag isn't new. And this surprised me. In the early years of the post-war German parliament, almost every second member had a university degree, which made me wonder... Was there something different about university degrees? Was there some different dynamic there? The proportionality was even more skewed and mm. a reflection of the population since only about 3% of Germans had studied in the mid-1960s. So you have this, this issue is, is not new to Germany, right? No, no, not at all. And we
1: can see there's been a positive growth in the amount of people that do go to universities. Obviously, Germany has shown that you don't have to go to university to have a good job. Mm-hmm. It, it really isn't that significant but if you want to be an academic of course it is sort of a guiding principle that you have to go and get a degree for that but yeah the, the, the vocational training available in germany is streets ahead of, of what's experience in any other country outside of the eu for sure you mentioned earlier that the new bundestag is being celebrated for its diversity and that is definitely something that's, that's valid and worth talking about mm. i mean age Is changing, of course. Yeah, it's a big one. Yeah, so on average now, of the 736 members of the Bundestag, they are significantly younger. The youngest of all is a 23-year-old, Emilia Fester of the Green Party. She's too young. (laughs) (laughs) Scheiße Gruner, and Dreams. Um, And 47 uh, are younger than 30. Uh, and that's, that's really great. that's really fantastic to have so much youth representation in in that uh, Bundestag this time around.
0: Especially given that there are like age restrictions on positions in in, mm-hmm. in the government, and I think I I think that's good. I think young young people, new ideas, new ways of thinking are always positive. Okay, so what about the
1: typical politician? What do you think is a Mister Typical? It is a Mister
0: i have to say well <laughs> that's it you've already answered your own question haven't you it's that's a, a bloke that's, isn't that's it there's one clear uh clear defining factor yeah In our, in our diverse parliament mr typical is the example <laughs> well i'm assuming well yeah it's a bloke obviously i mm-hmm. assume they're mid 40s 47 yeah good has some kind of okay, clearly has some kind of academic background is a trained lawyer um, yeah <laughs> is a trained lawyer actually the most typical job uh no, they they have they've picked
1: an individual and this guy is 47 uh, which is the average age of all parliamentarians he's a trained lawyer which is among the most popular career paths chosen by politicians. Can you guess his first name? Lucas. I think Lucas is a couple of of rungs below. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Lucas is a little bit younger, I think. Maybe in 20 years. Uh,
0: Michael. Michael, okay. Yeah, that that rings true, I'd say. That's the
1: most common name in the German parliament. (laughs) The
0: most common name is Michael in the German parliament.
1: And so they have a man, Michael Brand. Right. He is... Mr. Typical according to Deutsche Welle uh, and he is part of of course the CDU.
0: Well as, as we learned in the election they're not, they're not typical given that they you know lost the election
1: Yeah but still centre right I think we can say is for the Bundestag yeah, kind of typical. <laughs> what about gender?
0: How's the gender looking in this? Uh, we've already talked talk about Mr. Typical
1: Yeah there's good news here for sure but it still it's a tiny proportion it's only 4% is the number of women in the Bundestag. The biggest increase is the, the left and the Greens, both of them bringing the most people to the party there. But it is, I mean, it's really, it's really slow progress towards parity. The other thing that's, that's very interesting ab- about gender diversity is that now there are the first two uh, transgender women who have been elected
0: to the Bundestag mm-hmm. as well. Uh, we have Tessa Ganzera uh, and Nike Schlavik. I think that's, I just think that's great. I do. I know that the. It's a Debate that a lot of people don't want to get into the sort of transgender debate, and it is it can be murky, and obviously there's a lot of white hot rage for legitimate and illegitimate on all sides. But I just think, I think it's just great. I just think it's great. It makes us really, it's one of the we talked about national pride and and how I don't have any, <laughs> but the German part of me feels really really proud. Yeah, well, all of me does feel really proud to the the country that I, that I've chosen as home ha- has the capability to elect people who come from sort of very diverse perspectives and backgrounds and 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 raising them up into positions of not just celebrity but actual power like they they're, they're going to vote on things and they're going to have mm-hmm. positions of of importance you know and that's that's there's nothing better than that for, in my mind but i mean speaking of backgrounds mm-hmm. we've got um i'm curious about how many people who are like us but not like us, as in migrants but not necessarily white boy British guys? <laughs> <laughs> I imagine there's not many of those in the Bundestag. But how many how many people are coming from what they just would describe as uh, a migrant hintergrund? Yeah, migrant. Uh, yeah, background. migrant hintergrund
1: is exactly how they would describe it. So I mean, we have 736 members in total, uh, and of that, 83. Parliamentarians have their roots in migrant communities, is how it's phrased here. Uh, and again, it's it's primarily the Linker, the left party, and the Social Democrats. One person that's worth noting here is the SPD's Rasha Nazir, born in Dresden after her parents left Syria to begin a new life in communist East Germany, and she's now representing the eastern state of Saxony.
0: Bang! Look at that.
1: To be from migrant background to be elected in Saxony, that's that's a big step. That's man. really incredible. It's, the odds must have been really stacked against her.
0: She, she must be very, very formidable, I imagine.
1: She is surely incredible. Yeah, SPD also aren't necessarily hugely popular in Saxony. This is very much exactly. right-wing territory. Uh, so, a yeah, Russian is really fighting an incredible fight over there.
0: So, congratulations on her appointment into the Bundestag. So, uh, again, we're going to do, we're going to break all them rules mm-hmm. that we keep mm-hmm. setting for ourselves. But let's have a look at how that contrasts between the UK and Germany. What about the UK? Have we got have we got a land of diversity? I hope so. There's one thing that we do better or
1: in terms of our MPs is that female representation is really, really good. I mean, there's still room for improvement and parity hasn't been achieved, uh, but it's 220 female MPs, which is 34%. Uh, so more than a third of MPs in the UK are female, and that is very, very good. Uh, highest ever number of proportion naturally when we look at age it is a little bit older i said earlier the uh, mikhail brand was 47 to be the average in the uk it's 50 49 percent of mps over 50 and uh, members aged 18 to 29 uh, are only three uh, percent so our youth demographic is definitely lacking so far now of course. We spoke about universities being one of the key things in the UK, uh, in the German Bundestag. Now, what's interesting is that that holds true, but also education in general is different. So, conservative MPs are the most likely to have attended a fee-paying school, which is 41% of conservative Tories will go to a private yeah.
0: school. That's not massively
1: surprising. It's not a huge surprise at all. 30% Lib Dems do, 14% Labour, 7%
0: for the SNP. So... That is not a huge surprise. So, like, does that mean like the SNP is the most sort of working class party to a certain extent in terms of educational backgrounds? Yeah, at least the most representative. Mm-hmm. I
1: don't. I don't have figures for university degrees in the SNP, but yeah, I, I assume it holds that line. When we talk about MPs, we're talking about the House of Commons, and of course, it's always interesting to look at the House of Lords, which is, of course, a
0: different world. <laughs> No, as soon as you say the House of Lords, all I can think of is a room of very grey haired people. Yeah. Who are like so old, you're almost like, How are you? How are you still going? Like when you see speeches in the Lords, you're like, How are you how are you still standing? <laughs> Do you want
1: to have a guess at how many of them went to were privately educated? All of them. No, it's not. It's ninety eight percent.
0: <laughs> fucking close enough oh, dear. you can't have a place called the house of lords and not populate it with privately educated rich people you know it's insane it's like we haven't changed man it's honestly it's like do better Britain. Come on. it's not what Plato had in mind <laughs> it's not is it not are you sure the
1: privately educated kings
0: Karl Popper's going to come around and kick them all in the face
1: yeah And also, Zaman. A big thank you to Karen, Pete, Richard, Simon, Dilly, our ultras, and Tunbridge Daily, who all retweeted or shared the show this week. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not give us a rating on iTunes, which only takes a minute and can really help us? Retweet us, share a link, or post with the hashtag decadesfromhome or lowercase on Twitter or on Instagram. As ever, if you have any questions, feedback, or maybe an article or topic you'd like us to cover, you can tweet me, Simon, on Decades From Home, and you can tweet Nick at 40 Percent German. You can also get us at 40percentGerman at gmail.com. And if you have time, take a look at 40percentGerman.com. Weekly articles are up every Saturday. All I have to say is thanks, and we'll see you next time.